Uh, many of you will not know this about me, actually, but I was an art major in college. Uh, both Carrie and I were, actually. I studied digital art, all kinds of different disciplines, and Carrie studied graphic design, but we took all the art classes, drawing, painting. I even made some books along the way, uh, book binding. And one of the things I learned in college, there at art school, about the principles of composition in great works of art is the value of contrast. And the idea behind contrast is it's fairly simple. For some reason, the human eye is drawn to rather stark differences in shading and in color. In most uh, Picasso paintings, for example, there are often these bold and stark colors and then these very blocky shapes, right? It's very easy to see where one shape starts and another one stops and, and, and all that's going on there. There's, there's contrast. But even in more subtle and, and realistic paintings, it's, it's often the points of contrast that sort of draw us in and make us really want to gaze at that painting. Uh, Mona Lisa's dark hair, for instance, and that line on the top of her head that against the backdrop of that overcast sky, it makes it look like she's just popping like she's really right there. Or the swirling white lights in Van Gogh's otherwise dark and starry night, Right? Or the yellow sun in my paper mache bowl from elementary school. Um, I don't remember how old I was, uh, but I just remember this one art project that we did in elementary school at some point in time. They basically gave me this paper mache bowl and they said, here, paint this. And I said, great. Uh, and, and the first thing I could think to do was to grab the black paint and I just painted that whole thing black. Inside, outside, I painted the whole bowl black and then I let it dry and then the next thing I did was to grab the yellow paint, the brightest paint I could find and I put a big fat circle right in the middle of the bottom of that bowl and these thick sun ray lines sort of fanning out to the top of the bowl. It was kind of cool actually, but <laughs> why did I do that? Why was I inclined to, to, to make that look that way? I, I think in some ways it's because there is just something so careful about contrast. And I think we're going to see today, this is also the case when it comes to the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Last week we saw we need to live for this heavenly kingdom no matter how it goes on earth. And I'll tell you, we've seen there's probably going to be some contrast here often doesn't go well. And so in our passage this week, Jesus is basically anticipating our objections to this contrast. And he's trying to persuade us, no, 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 listen, the contrast is not a bad thing. In fact, it's essential. It's all part of my plan. And we've already seen all kinds of parallels made between Jesus and Moses so far in the book of Matthew in chapters one to four. Uh, first, Jesus takes refuge in Egypt like Moses to flee a tyrant king who is trying to kill him like Moses. Then when Jesus is tempted like Adam, he actually quotes from the Torah, which is the book of Moses. Well, this Sermon on the Mount is likely another parallel between Jesus and Moses. And really, it may actually be the clearest and most important Moses connection in the entire book. Because one of the most iconic moments in the story and life of Moses was this trip that he made up a mountain. Right, to Mount Sinai, 
to receive a word from God, which is the Old Testament law. Now, just a couple passages ago, Jesus, again, he even quoted from this book of Moses, from the Torah, and he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, he said, that comes from the mouth of God. And then here's Jesus on a mountain, and Matthew tells us, opening his mouth to teach. In other words, this time, at the start of this kingdom, God himself has come down to speak his word to us. And we'll see throughout the sermon, he really does have a lot to say about this Old Testament law from Moses and what it means for this heavenly kingdom he's talking about. We'll talk a lot more about that next week. This week, I wanna focus on the audience for this Sermon on the Mount in relation to what would have been Moses' audience as he came down from the mountain, right? Moses delivered the word that God had given to him on the mountain to the people who would go on to become the earthly kingdom of Israel. Here, King Jesus is starting, chartering a new kingdom by coming down from heaven himself and inviting this crowd up the mountain even with him and then opening his mouth to speak the very words of God to a bunch of needy, unimportant Galileans. There's a contrast there. It's as if almost the story's kind of starting over. It's almost sort of repeating itself, but a little differently. The point seems to be in some way, this sermon is kind of like that Old Testament law that Moses received at Mount Sinai. And this crowd is, is, is the start of a new and heavenly kingdom, uh, kind of like those Hebrews who wandered the wilderness with Moses long ago. Now with that in mind, last week, Jesus began this sermon with sort of a manifesto of how this kingdom works here on earth. He told us, blessed are those who do all kinds of really difficult stuff here on earth, right? Mourning, giving mercy, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, right? Blessed are they, they've got it right for, in the end is the idea, when God reverses this great curse of sin and sets all things right, they, he said, will receive a heavenly reward. This is the gist of, of the Beatitudes. Listen, it's good and it's right to live in this way for heaven, no matter how it goes here on earth. And Jesus really drove that point home, didn't he, at the conclusion of the beatitude. Instead of saying, rather, blessed are they, or blessed are those who, for instance, he says, blessed are you. In other words, he's talking to this crowd. He says, blessed are you, the followers of mine who are here sitting, listening to me on this mountain. In other words, with this last beatitude, Jesus is turning his attention away from just theoretical ideas and he is personalizing this teaching and applying it very directly to those in the crowd, which is why I think it's no mistake that that last beatitude is by far the most weighty one of all. Look at it with me. He says... Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, he says, and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, here's why all of that really matters for our passage today. Because the very next thing Jesus says here is you are the salt. You are the light, right? 
You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt, the, the light of the world. And the, the point is that you is the same you as the one before it. The idea here is that we have to read all this stuff about salt and light in the context of what Jesus just said about this counterintuitive blessed life in which we live for heaven no matter how it goes on earth. He's basically saying here, you guys, as in the, the, the members of this new heavenly community, the one that rejoices even when they're rejected, you guys are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now reading this in that way has huge implications for the meaning of those two illustrations, salt and light. Last week's passage and this week's passage, hear me, are linked together. They, they're connected. And especially if we read our passage today without that in mind, we will go on making a huge mess of this passage, which often happens. Last week, we saw a tension. Look, this may not go well, like at all, but it's still the best way to live, Right? And this week, Jesus is helping us to see why that tension is essential to the very purpose that God has in mind for this new heavenly kingdom here on earth. He does that with these two illustrations about salt and about light. Now, the words Jesus uses here are not particularly hard to understand. In relation to the rest of the world, this new heavenly community King Jesus is creating, it is like salt and it is like light. That has something to do with its purpose. The words he uses are clear. What he means by the words, on the other hand, is, is not entirely as clear. But my sense is that the best way to make sense of both illustrations is actually to begin here at the end. So if you would look with me at verse 16. In verse 16, for instance, at the end of the light illustration, Jesus seems to apply that illustration in a way that I think makes both illustrations come into focus. It makes them clear. He says, in the same way, just like that light illustration I just told you, let your light shine before others. Now, I want to pause here and point out, whatever the point of this illustration is, Jesus seems concerned that we may be tempted not to let our light shine before others, right? That, we'll come back to that, it's very important, but the whole point seems to be that we, for one reason or another, but we should. And so whatever the illustration means, notice here is why it's important for us to let the light shine. Jesus says, so that when they, they may see your good works rather and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Now, there are two questions I think that are unavoidable. Two questions here we have to ask and consider. The first one is this. What kind of good works does Jesus have in mind here? And I think almost certainly in context, the most natural answer to that is what he just said. Uh, he's, he's talking about the good works he described in the Beatitudes. He just cast this vision for the blessed way to live, right? And so he must be talking about things like mourning, meekness, mercy, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, right? If not, it's kind of hard to know exactly what he does mean. But that then leads to a really strange second question because wait a minute, didn't he just tell us the world is gonna persecute and revile us if we live in this way? Didn't he say that when they do, it's worth it and we should rejoice and be glad even because our reward is great in heaven? Do you see the problem here? 
How does Jesus get from blessed are you when others persecute you because of this heavenly reward to they will see your good deeds and, and give glory to your father who is in heaven? We're like, which will it be? Is, is the world going to hate and revile us or are they going to see our good works and glorify our father in heaven? Now, I want to propose something here. Could it be that the good works Jesus has in mind are not just the first part of each of the Beatitudes, but really the full picture of his entire vision of this blessed life, including the bit about persecution and rejoicing? Could it be that part of the good works Jesus specifically includes here is, is rejoicing and being glad in response to the persecution and hatred of this world. I think so. I think that's what's going on. In fact, I think it's really the only way to make sense of this passage in light of last week's. Jesus is not just saying with these illustrations, you guys, you're the salt of the earth. So listen, if you just live for this kingdom, this world is gonna think you taste great. It's gonna go awesome. Everybody's gonna get saved. He's not saying you guys are the light of the world. So if you just let that light shine, listen, everybody's going to appreciate you guys and how much easier it is to see when you're around. No, they're probably going to even thank you, right? No. When this light shines, it often does not go well in the world. It does lead to persecution and reviling and slandered. By the way, that's why we're probably tempted not to let it shine. Because Jesus is basically saying here, no, no, guys, you, you can't think that way. You can't see that contrast and then run from it. That's how it's supposed to work. The fact that we stick out, the fact that we taste different, it's all by design. In fact, I would argue this is the claim of our passage today, church, is that if we try to blend in with this world, we will be of no use to it. If we try to blend in with the world, we will be of no use to it. Now, with that framework, as we do turn to these illustrations, I think it's a little easier to make sense of them because the point of both illustrations has to do with contrast, with, with a difference, a distinction. We'll start with the salt. This one is easily the more obscure, specifically because there are all kinds of use for salt in the ancient world today, but also to preserve food because they didn't have refrigerators. They'd pack food with salt to keep it fresh. It was also apparently used as a means of payment within the Roman Empire, which is where that phrase, he's worth his salt, actually comes from. So there are all these theories out there about what Jesus may mean then, therefore, by what it means to be salt of the earth. And some of them, frankly, are rather bad theories that completely miss the point, I think. Uh, frankly, I think Matthew tells us what he means here. Fairly plainly, he is talking about the taste of salt. Imagine you're eating dinner. And as you're eating, you notice, you know, this dinner is a little bit bland today. And so you grab the salt shaker and you sort of put some salt on there. The top falls off of the salt shaker, right? All the salt all over your food. Okay, great, right? Uh, and, and you do your best. You, you sort of scrape it off. You've probably been here before. You scrape it off. But there, listen, there's more salt in that dish than you were expecting there to be. There's no way around it. But then as you go and as you take another bite, I want you to imagine it tastes exactly the same. There's, there's no contrast at all between the salt and your bland meal. 
Now I want you to ask, ask this question. How might that change your opinion about the value of the salt? I'll tell you, I, I would probably think, well, this is useless, right? I, we need to get some more salt. And this is the point. When Jesus says, how will it saltiness be recovered? It, it, it's, he's not trying to teach us chemistry here. It's a rhetorical question. The answer is, it can't. It's, it, it's useless. It doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter anymore. If salt does not taste noticeably different than the food we use it to season, then, then the salt is, has no value. The same principle applies to Jesus' illustration of light. The point seems to be that light, by definition, creates a stark contrast with the darkness. It's the whole point of light. And first, he makes this point positively by saying, it's just not even possible to hide a city on the top of a hill. You can't do it because cities with lights, of course, they're going to stick out, especially at nighttime, right? And this was especially the case in the ancient world without any electricity. I want you to imagine in the ancient world, there was really two sources of light, literally the sun and then some form of an open flame. So light was very difficult to come by. Nobody could just flip a switch and have it. So especially outdoors and especially in the middle of the night, it got pretty dark. So if a city is just kind of out there in the open on a hill, there is no hiding it, especially at nighttime. You, you are just going to see the lamps in that city against the contrast of the pitch black surroundings. Then Jesus makes the same point, but in a negative sense, by explaining how foolish it would be to light a lamp and then put it under a basket, right? The lamp, it might be lit under that basket, for instance, but what is even the purpose of it being lit if it's under the basket? It's not helping anyone to see. The room will be just as dark, even if the light is lit under the basket. There's no, no new contrast in the room. It doesn't change anything. You see this? So by definition, light creates a visible contrast. The whole point is that it does not look like the darkness and that contrast it creates is absolutely essential to its value and its purpose. If you try and hide the contrast the light creates, then the light becomes useless. By definition, salt creates a culinary contrast, a contrast in flavor. The whole point is that it does not taste the same as the bland food we use it to season. And that contrast it creates there is absolutely essential to its value and its purpose. If the salt fails to create that contrast in flavor, the salt is now useless. And in the same way, if we just try to blend in here in this world, to get rid of this contrast between us and this world, then we will be useless to this world. We will be useless. Church, it is our willingness to live in a way that Jesus commended last week, no matter how it goes here on earth, that makes us useful. It is our willingness to live for this kingdom and to be rejected and then to rejoice that will actually make a difference in this world. Now, before we turn to application, I just want to make one point to help us apply all of this well, okay? Uh, Jesus is teaching all of this to a crowd and he's instructing this crowd about the new and heavenly kingdom, this community that they will go on to become, which is the church by the end of the gospel of Matthew. Therefore, this is not just about your purpose in the world as an individual Christian. This is about our purpose in the world together as the church of Jesus Christ here on earth today. 
And so to read this and think, I am the salt of the earth. I am the light of the world on my own is really in a way to misunderstand it and to misapply it, certainly. And as just a brief aside, I, I want to point out this really is very relevant even to our practice of church membership, meaningful membership. We talk about it a lot. Some people are uncomfortable even with this idea of membership because it almost seems like the aim even is to make it very clear who is in the kingdom of heaven by grace alone through faith alone and who is not in the kingdom of heaven. And it's almost as if we kind of don't like the contrast, right? As if mm, that, that much contrast, it might be a barrier even to our heavenly purpose here on earth rather than part of the point of it. As if maybe we should sort of lighten up on that salt a little bit, turn down the light, might offend somebody. All that to say, before I start talking about what this means for us and how we should respond, I think it's important to just qualify what I mean by us and by we are, are the members of Redemption Church together. Those who are committed at least to, to Christ's people as a meaningful member of a specific church that is meant to live out the life of this kingdom together. This is about our purpose together here on earth. That said, here are three things I think we can walk away with from our passage today. The first is that King Jesus is calling us to do this world good. This is maybe the not so surprising application, I suppose. But it's important to start here because as simple an idea as this may be, if we lose sight of it, which certainly happens, it causes all kinds of problems. As counterintuitive and risky and rejection prone as it really is to follow this King Jesus, we can easily grow bitter and hostile toward the world and forget that God is calling us to do it good. We're meant to do good. Now, this doesn't mean that we let the world define what is good and then just do that. Uh, but it does mean that as followers of King Jesus and citizens of heaven, uh, as we get to know our neighbors, for instance, our coworkers here on earth, e even as we take in the headlines of world news, frankly, what we should not feel towards others in this world are things like annoyance or frustration. Instead, we should have this palpable sense, I love these people, and I want good for them. More than that, right? We, we should order and go about our lives in a way that prioritizes even the pursuit of this kind of earthly good. And so it's worth just considering, do you really have a passion and burden to see broken families and broken marriages restored? Or those without much money or influence being treated with honor and with dignity. Or even just to see hard, cynical hearts softened by the truth of the gospel. Are, are, are those the things that really matter to you? And does your faith in Jesus compel you to pursue them for the good of others? Now, in some ways, I think it's understandable that Christians would really grieve the state of the world. I think that's appropriate. In some ways, uh, there really are a long list of things to lament or to mourn in Jesus' words. And to some extent, I do think it's important for us to talk about those rather than just sort of whitewashing them, sweeping them under the rug. There is a danger in that, to be sure. But there's also a danger in giving in to despair. There is a danger in experiencing this incredible taste 
and this powerful, bright light of the gospel ourselves and then sort of keeping these good heavenly things for ourselves because we don't really care much for this world. Now, we have to balance all these things uh, with what Jesus is about to say in chapter 6. He's going to say, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for they will... For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. In other words, it's not just that Jesus is calling us to be seen doing good in this world. This is not some like PR or marketing stunt for the church. And what I'm more interested in here, and what Christ I think is more interested in here, is the posture of our hearts toward this world. And even particularly the poor and the needy of this world, like many of those gathered in this crowd Because when Jesus does say these things about not practicing righteousness to be seen, the the point does not seem to be, yeah, it's just those woke do-gooders who care about all that stuff, right? Caring for the poor and all that. Yeah, these people just kind of got married and stayed married and maybe focused on their education, you know, maybe life wouldn't be so hard for them. That is not the point or the posture here at all. In fact, he basically says, listen, yeah, don't sound a trumpet when you do these things. But then he continues, says, when you do give to the needy, (laughs) do not let your left hand know what your right is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And, And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Yes, for giving for the poor, he will reward you. For seeking the good of this world, God will reward you for these things. Not because you're kind of helping him out with his brand, but because you have a pure heart that longs to do this world good. A pure heart that truly hungers and thirsts for righteousness in this world. But here's the key. Even in secret, even in the depths of your heart when nobody's there to hear or see anything, is this what we long for? Church, one one theme we'll see over and over again throughout this sermon is that Jesus has a way of penetrating beyond our actions and words to address the real matters of the heart. And I am concerned, as I think he is concerned, that we may be prone to a kind of deadly heart condition that is marked by apathy and by indignation toward the world around us. That we may be tempted, for instance, to discuss world affairs or or even to hold to sound doctrine, all to make a case for how much superior we are to all those in this world who don't know and follow Jesus. Between us and the world, and the point of that contrast is to make us look good. Church, we should very much identify as still broken former citizens of this world till our dying day. And we should very much long to be used by God to do good here, especially to those in need. We have to start there. We have to. And we also, though, have to talk about how we do this world good. How? Because next, this may surprise some of you, but we do this world good by living differently. Or you might say it this way, we do this world good by living for the kingdom of heaven no matter how it goes here on earth, right? This is the contrast Jesus made, is making here with these illustrations of salt and of light. It's not that the world will see our mourning, our meekness, and our mercy and say, oh, wow, I'm so impressed. 
See, that's all the stuff that I really value. So now, this is what I've been waiting for. Now I'll glorify your Father who's in heaven. By the way, we're not tempted to sort of hide this light because, I don't know, maybe we're a little bashful about how great of a person we are, right? Just to maybe just let the light shine, right? Let it shine. Just show the world. That's not what's going on here. That's not what's going on here. No, it's that the world will see our mourning our meekness, and our mercy. And they will say at first, why in the world would you live that way? It's ridiculous. It's not going to end well at all. They may even persecute and revile us, utter all kinds of false and evil things against us because they don't understand. They do not appreciate, and they are often even threatened by the way of life that Jesus is commending here, the one he's just endorsed. The whole point of this passage this week is basically, look, when you start to catch that drift, you're going to be really tempted to downplay the contrast, aren't you? You'll be tempted to think, well, how can I do this world good if it rejects and reviles me? How is that going to work? But church, the contrast, that contrast is the point. It's the point. To those of you who are single, for instance, very common situation. I imagine that if you start dating someone and over time you start to get the sense that you don't really even know if they understand the gospel or even believe in Jesus themselves. All of a sudden, it probably feels like you're at a bit of a, a crossroads, doesn't it? If you really like that person, enjoy spending time with them. Right? Should I downplay the spiritual contrast that's between us so that I can keep enjoying this person's company? Should I rationalize in my mind? I don't know. It seems like they're at least open to the idea that God might exist. Is that enough? You know what Paul says about being yoked with unbelievers, especially in intimate relationships. He says, what does light have in common with darkness? In other words, he points to the contrast. We can't forget, there's supposed to be a kind of contrast here. And if it's not there, it may be, that, may be that we're hiding it. There may be something wrong here. The best way to shine your light to that new unbelieving friend you have is not to ignore the fact that they're living in darkness and, and just link your life with theirs as if it's all the same. In fact, that may be exactly, again, what Jesus has in mind by putting the light under a bushel to make sure it doesn't break out and cause any issues, right? Right? As hard as this may be, friends, the best thing you can do in this scenario is to say, listen, I really enjoy spending time with you. But the most important thing about me is that I've repented of my sin. I believe in this resurrected King Jesus and my whole life is about living for his eternal kingdom. And sorry, I, I really do wish you the best, but this is, this is not going to work for me. We have, to, we have to ask ourselves in scenarios like this, Right? Which would we rather have? A spiritually broken relationship with no heavenly contrast or a pure heart? A hunger and thirst for righteousness that may actually then end up doing that person some good. Again, no matter what that means for you. This is not some backdoor like, boy, hey, you know. Even if you miss out on a relationship, what if your willingness to seek and savor Christ above all is part of the good that that friend actually will need to see? the light of the gospel. Or let's say you make a close friend at work, you really enjoy them, but then one day they start talking about their sexuality. And it's clear uh, they've built an entire identity, essentially, for themselves around some form of sexual immorality. 
whether that is uh, promiscuity, uh, infidelity, transgenderism, homosexuality. And that would be one thing, right? But as they keep sharing, you get this really clear sense that if you say anything ever that even hints at the suggestion that they're living in sin, that they need to repent and that they need to leave that earthly life behind in order to follow King Jesus with you. If you say anything even close to that, my goodness, that friendship will be over immediately. And it will not end with some amicable parting of ways. They will revile you. They will detest you. They may even go around talking to others, uttering all kinds of evil things against you falsely. Do you see why it might be tempting to tuck that light under a basket? You see why it might be tempting to kind of empty the salt shaker out and then put the top back on and say, here, I hope, does that, is that, does that help at all? We are called by King Jesus to do this world good. We are. But if there's anything we learn from his example here in Matthew, it is going to be that we cannot gauge the effectiveness of our love for this world based on how well the world receives us. We can't. My goodness, this King Jesus will do the greatest possible good imaginable for this world by letting us spit on his tattered body and nail him to a cross. Now that is different. That is a stark contrast. And church, that is the epitome of what it means to be salt and light in the world. You may not love it at first. It may seem peculiar, unpleasant, out of place, but you can't help but taste it, can you? You can't help but see, huh, he must really believe in this kingdom of heaven he just died for. Maybe I need to take a closer look at this. Church, we need to ask ourselves this morning, are we willing to do this world good even if it means being rejected by this world? And finally, one more application to try and persuade you to answer yes. Number three, our joyful persistence will make all the difference. Joyful persistence. The idea here is that when we keep living in this way, when we embrace the contrast between us and this world and we rejoice even when this world rejects us, that is what will cause some to say, huh, maybe there's something to this. It's not just that we've died to this world. It's that we live different. We've died to this world and it's all a joy to us. We rejoice. That is the light. That is the salt. That is our purpose in the world. It's to persuade others that this God of heaven deserves all of their worship and adoration because of this peculiar otherworldly joy he gives us here on earth even as we're rejected and reviled and persecuted. See this? It's, it's not just our superficial happiness that makes the difference on the surface. Eh, smile, right? In some ways, again, this, this, this looks like meekness. This looks like sobriety. It's not the surface level emotion that persuades people. It's the fact that we keep going. 
we keep going. We keep living for heaven no matter how it goes for us on earth. We just keep doing it. We keep embracing this contrast even if it costs us greatly. We keep coming here every Sunday morning to rejoice and sing all the same. We keep patiently longing together for the promise of heaven. Church, this is how we need to walk together as fellow members of Christ's church and citizens of this kingdom. Let's help one another to remember this and to embrace the contrast. Let's encourage one another in seasons of hardship. Listen, Christ is worth it, right? When the world rejects us, we need brothers and sisters standing by us to say, I'm sorry, this is so hard, I love you, but look, let's rejoice. Let's rejoice. Rejoice and be glad for our reward is great in heaven. This is hard. I know it's hard. At times it feels like being crucified. But we cannot be sparse with the salt. We, we cannot hide this heavenly light. We have to let it shine. Because this is all part of God's plan to bless and redeem a world that has rejected him. <laughs> 